Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are going to um, have a little adventure this morning. Uh, we are not going to stay with the text of the Torah portion. Rather, we are going to read some of the Torah portion, and then we are going to look at another text. Anybody want to guess which one? Think about what's coming. Nachon. Rita, what were you going to say? The Haggadah. Nah. Well, oh, sorry, so, I, I'm sorry. The Megillah. <laughs> exactly right. So we are going to look at a portion of the text from our Torah portion, and we're going to hold that next to text from the Megillah. Um, it is not always or even that often that Titzaveh, this Torah portion, bumps up against Purim, like this close. Like So this Monday is uh, is Purim. We are celebrating as a community tomorrow uh, is the Purim bash. We have 290-something people signed up. Uh, and then Monday is adult Purim. So we are, we are celebrating Purim and reading Parsha Titzavet. All right. So Titzavet is about instructions regarding what? What have, what have we begun reading about? Uh-huh. The Mishkan, the tabernacle. So we are reading instructions about building the actual structure. This week in Titzavet, we are getting a description of the garments. Uh, that the priests that we are uh, commanded in this parsha to make for the priests, including the high priest. I haven't said it yet, George. Um, so that's why we're going to jump to that part of the parsha, which means we will be in Exodus chapter twenty-eight. So you are to bring close. Aharon, your brother, and his sons with him from amongst the people of Israel in order to make him uh, and his sons Kohanim, right? Priests. Remember, they are Levites. Excuse me. All priests are Levites. Not all Levites are priests. So from the tribe of Levi, this family alone um, becomes priests. Interesting that Aharon passes his status to his sons, who does not pass in leadership their status to their sons? Hmm. Moshe. Interesting. Moshe does not pass leadership to his sons. So we can have a very long conversation about why or why not. Why is one station hereditary and the other not? The rabbis have a good time with that. It's interesting. There's a big split in Islam. Between the Shia and the uh, Sunni, and the Sunni, over who whether the succession after the Prophet Muhammad was going to family or not. Nachon. Uh, okay, which is why Moshe commissions Joshua publicly in front of all the people. Right. This is exactly why Moshe does it publicly and in front of all of the people because you don't want any kind of succession, secession, right? You don't want any kind of succession argument or fight, which can lead to civil war uh, or a division of the um, cult into sects, right? And that's exactly what happened with Islam. 
So you are to make uh, vestments for your brother Aaron, for respect, for dignity, and for beauty. You shall instruct all who are skillful, here called wise of heart, whom I have endowed with the gift of skill. Not exactly. This is a terrible translation. So you you will speak to all those who are wise of heart, whom have been filled with the spirit of wisdom. Ruach chokma, the spirit of wisdom. Ve'asu et bigdei Aharon lekodesho, and they will make the clothing for Aharon to sanctify him. For his being a priest to me. These are the vestments they are to make. A breastpiece and aphod, a robe, a fringed tunic, a headdress and a sash. They shall make those sacral vestments for your brother Aaron and for his sons for priestly service to me. They therefore shall receive the gold, the blue, purple and crimson yarns and the fine linen. They shall make the aphod of gold, of blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and of fine twisted linen worked into designs. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached. They shall be attached at its two ends. And the decorated band that is upon it shall be made like it, of one piece with it, of gold, of blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and of fine twisted linen. Then take two lazuli stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. On the two stones you shall make seal engravings, the work of a lapidary, the names of the children of Israel, having bordered them with frames of gold. Attach the two stones to the shoulder pieces of the aphod, as stones for remembrance of the Israelite people, whose names Aaron shall carry upon his two shoulder pieces for remembrance before Yudhe Then make frames of gold and two chains of pure gold. Braid these like corded work and fasten the corded chains to the frames. You shall make a breastpiece of decision worked into a design. Make it in the style of the aphod. Make it of gold, of blue, purple, and crimson yarns and of fine twisted linen. It shall be square and doubled, a span in length and a span in width. Set it in mounted stones in four rows of stones. The first row shall be a row of carnelian, chrysolite, and emerald. The second row, a turquoise, a sapphire, and an amethyst. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and a crystal. And the fourth row, a beryl, a lapis lazuli, and a jasper. They shall be framed with gold in their moldings. The stones shall correspond to the names of the sons of Israel, 12 corresponding to their names. They shall be engraved like seals, each with its name for the 12 tribes. On the breastpiece, make graded chains of corded work in pure gold. Make two rings of gold on the breastpiece and fasten the two rings at the two ends of the breastpiece, attaching the two golden cords to the two rings at the ends of the breastpiece. Then fasten the two ends of the cords to the two frames, which you shall attach to the shoulder pieces of the aphod at the front. Make two rings of gold and attach them to the two ends of the breastpiece at its inner edge, which faces the aphod. And make two other rings of gold and fasten them on the front of the aphod, low on the two shoulder pieces, close to its seam above the decorated band. 
The breastpiece shall be held in place by a cord of blue from its rings to the rings of the aphode so that the breastpiece rests on the decorated band and does not come loose from the aphode. Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel on the breastpiece of decision over his heart when he enters the sanctuary for remembrance before Yudhevavhe at all times. Inside the breastpiece of decision, you shall place the Urim and Tumim so that they are over Aaron's heart when he comes before Yudhevavhe. Thus Aaron shall carry the instrument of decision for the Israelites over his heart before Yudhevavhe at all times. You shall make the robe of the aphod of pure blue, which meant it was one of the most expensive things you could possibly imagine making in the ancient world. A garment of pure blue would have been outrageously expensive. The opening for the head shall be in the middle of it. The opening shall have a binding of woven work round about it. It shall be like the opening of a coat of mail so that it does not tear. On its hem, make pomegranates of blue, purple, and crimson yarns all around the hem with bells of gold between them all around. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate all around the hem of the robe. Aaron shall wear it while officiating so that the sound of it is heard when he comes into the sanctuary before Yudhei when he goes out, that he may not die. You shall make a frontlet of pure gold and engrave on it the seal inscription, Kodesh Ladonai, holy to Yudhei Suspend it on a cord of blue so that it may remain on the headdress. It shall remain on the front of the headdress. It shall be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may take away any sin arising from the holy things that the Israelite consecrate. From any of their sacred donations, it shall be on his forehead at all times to win acceptance for them before Yudhei You shall make the fringed tunic of fine linen. You shall make the headdress of fine linen. You shall make the sash of embroidered work. And for Aaron's sons, you shall also make tunics and make sashes for them and make turbans for them. Lechavod ultifaret for dignity and beauty. Put these on your brother Aaron and on his sons as well. Anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them to serve me as priests. Right? Mashachta. We saw this word last week. This is where Mashiach comes from, right? The word Mashiach comes from anointed one. You shall also make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness. They shall extend from hips to the thighs so that when they walk up that big staircase with their tunic on, they're not showing more than they need to. They shall be worn by Aaron and his sons when they enter the tent of meeting or when they approach the altar to officiate in the sanctuary so that they do not incur punishment and die. It shall be a law for all time for him and his offspring to come. Okay. So that was our description of the priestly garments. That was the description of um, what the high priest is to wear and then what the other priests are to wear. So they wear a slightly different version. The high priest gets to wear the hoo-ha, hoo-ha, fancy one. The other ones just get, you know, a tunic. Like it's not quite the same. So I saw the microphone go. Who's going to speak? May I make a comment? Sure. Just for for information, the glass at the top of this room, the very top, and the Star of David in the sanctuary, I took the stones that they mentioned to the paint store, and we we matched the stones that were described uh, in the Torah to the paint colors so that all of those jewels are represented twice in our synagogue. So this is typical in synagogues. This is very typical. You take the, we talked about it on the Torah cover last week, right? You take the 
the symbols, the colors, the themes of the Mishkan, of the high priest garments, of the priestly garments, and you you use it throughout the synagogue, right, to be a resonant of, of this description. You, I was just thinking about Ikea directions. <laughs> you were just thinking of Ikea directions. Um, yes. Right. Right. So sort of like Ikea directions, um, when people have actually tried to follow the instructions for building a lot of what's described in these parshiot, they, they cannot figure out how to make what it says the way it says to make it. So in that sense, it is like instructions created in another language, literally, right? And then translated loosely sometimes into English, right? Where it's just like, I don't understand how, with the words you have just written down, I am supposed to make these things into what the picture shows. Hmm? Would would you grab it? Do you mind? I, I, my YouTube channel is not loading for some reason. It's telling me I have no content. Is this like um, God as fashion designer? Yeah. It is. <laughs> yes. So decision here uh, of the breastplate means it is uh, a, it it is what in the ancient world you would call an oracle. Um, the orim and tumim can only give a yes or no answer. But at big national moments, it was only used for national moments of crisis. The high priest could go in um, and could request that God give a thumbs up or a thumbs down. They would wear the breastplate. Yes. So you you reached into the breast. You reached into the orim and tumim to get your yes or no answer. So that 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 that. But it only was for national things like. Is this enough for us to go to war? Right? Can, are we justified in going on a, a, a war of aggression, which is different from a war of defense? Killing in a war of defense is always permittable. It's questionable when it's a war of aggression. So that, that might be a moment where the priest would want the Urim and Tumim to say yes or no. Only the Urim and Tumim. Um, I was trying to find for you a picture of the the um, high priest's garments and of the Mishkan itself, but I don't know why my channel <laughs> shield. Yeah, but what? Why? Why Magain? It's not a shield. Davka. It's not a shield. What is a shield for? Yes. So Davka, you wouldn't use any terminology that's about war. To talk about, right, the, the, right, the, it's lechavod ultif aret. It's davka, the opposite of war. What are these, what are these silver breastplates and everything else for? Lechavod ultif aret. For honor and for, they say adornment, but tiferet, tiferet is beauty. And right? For beautification. There was one phrase where, you know, let, let's say, um, they leave and die. So they would must wear the priest must wear these garments unless they walk out and die. So the there's there's several things that are dangerous. Apparently, one is to come before God without warning God that one is coming. And how does one do that? Well, there's the bells. There's the bells, <laughs> right? So the bells. It is not polite to come into someone's most private chamber without announcing oneself, 
right? Could you imagine someone walking into your bedroom like without announcing themselves? That is rude. Um, and so the last being you want to be rude to is, you know, the all powerful, almighty, all knowing, right? So, so what the priest announces his presence with the bells. Um, some want to say it's also so that the Israelites know the priest is still alive and going about his job. Like everyone knows he's okay because they're not allowed to go in. They can't see where he is. The Levites can't see him. Levites can't go into the inner part of the Mishkan. And so that means that the priest, the high priest is by himself and no one can see him. So the bells let you know he's still walking around in there, like doing what he's supposed to do. I had the sense that it, this part was after it was upon leaving, like retreating. No. Okay. So there's no threat from people on the outside. No, no. Cause they, only the Levites can be in the big tent at all. So it's only the Levites there, but the other piece is, so the bells is one part. The other part is that this is the protective suit one has to wear to walk into a nuclear facility. You don't go into a nuclear facility without from head to toe, right? Being, being prepared, right? And, and protected from the power of that. This is similar. The power of Yudhe Buffe will go forth and consume what's in its path if the right precautions are not taken. It just is how things work. That's just how it is, right? There's no why. There's no how come. There's no that makes no sense. Like that is a modern contemporary mind trying to read these texts. In the ancient world, they completely understood. Blood is apotropaic, right? They understood. This is how the world works. If you don't go in to the holy of holies prepared, like you're toast. You are toast. They understood that. This is our culture's description of that in ancient Israel, but every ancient Near Eastern culture, I, I would, I'm going to risk it here, my credibility, and say, I would say all ancient cultures understood the way the, the world operated and then what you had to do to protect and to mitigate against the forces that one can't see, right? Um, you do not go up to Mount Olympus unprepared. They totally understood radioactivity. Okay. But David, notice how I've been repeating what people said. So, um, <laughs> so, um, but the, to the Mount Olympus piece, um, Mount Olympus, of course, is mythic, right? It's not a real place. The Mishkan, a lot of people want to argue, is a traveling Sinai, right? The Mishkan is a traveling Sinai. So God gives the, you know, the commandments, the tablets at Sinai. They are placed in the Aron so that then they carry Sinai with them. So the encounter between the sacred, you know, God as the most sacred possible and humanity, the most profane possible because they sin, right? Like angels don't sin. You know, so humanity is the only ones and animals don't sin. So the most holy possible and pure possible and the most contaminatable possible come together at Sinai and come together at in the Mishkan. Okay. So, so a, a 
representation of the mythic mountain. For us, it's also mythic. We, we don't know where Sinai is. Like we don't know where this, you know, Mount Sinai is. That's on purpose, right? Torah doesn't want us to know. Why not? So we don't go there and make. Public. Ah, very nice, Laura Diamond. So you don't pay a tour guide to take you there as the sun rises and have some kind of different experience of the divine than one could have in a lot at the oceanfront hotel. You should not venerate anything about the physical mountain. It was pretty neat, though. Okay, already. We have someone who sold out. All right. Just kidding. All right. So we're going to now. So we have an idea of this set of garments, right? Use your imagination. So we've got this amazing tunic. It's made out of the most expensive color possible. So you don't see it a lot in the ancient world, right? You were lucky if you had a trim, a little trim of something with blue or purple or crimson because it's hugely expensive. So any any of that color anywhere on anything you have is a mark of your status. To have an entire garment of that was only for royalty or the folks close to royalty. Uh, it still is in some way. Well, still now the, the color of symbol because of that, but it's not expensive anymore to do. So, um, what was my point? So, so when you imagine this, you can even imagine that it was beautiful and it was elaborate and it was intricate. You can imagine all of that, but you have to put yourself in the mind of the ancient Mesopotamian person to understand the incredible awe and grandeur that that would have represented, right? It's a magic color. It's an incredibly difficult dye to make, and then hugely beyond any person's ability to afford. Doesn't that special blue come from snails, these rare snails in Egypt? Yes. Okay. Um. Uh, which is why it's so hard to make. Snails have very small glands. And, and I, yes. I would want to know when you read it, it, it brings awe to me when I try and imagine it. It's just not to the people there. And then it's today's reader when we read it again and again. Right. And if you watch our ECC kids, you know, we take the Torah out every week. Um, and someone holds the Torah when they're done with their Friday experience in the sanctuary and the kids walk by and are encouraged to touch and kiss, right, the Torah. I cannot tell you, and I'm I'm often honored with holding the Torah. Um, and so these little kids come by with their snotty little hands. And, like, they go to touch the Torah and whatever. And what I love watching is, like, they are fascinated with the silver breastplate with the 12 stones on it. Of course, we have it because it's reminiscent of exactly this. But they stop and are like, Oh my God, right? They are just transfixed and then they want to look closer and then they want to pick which one they like best. Mm-hmm. And I like that one, right? You know, and so it's, it's still, to your point, it still is magnificent and still really different from what we usually wear and still really like eye candy, right? Yes. Sorry. No, I'm also <clears throat> struck, I guess, this year by the, you know, we were always talking about the slave mentality and the slave mentality is to hoard what I have and not share it because, and, and this is actually really pushing against that slave mentality. This, you don't invest in this, like this collective, uh, thing instead of, instead of just, you know, hit over the head and. Okay. So I just want to 
push back gently on that for a second to say, I think many slave populations were more generous with each other because everyone had nothing. And, and they share, even you look today in the slums of India, they share everything they have. Okay. Everybody has nothing and everybody shares what they have. There is much less attachment to it's mine, 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 mine. If you're starving, maybe it's different, right? But, um, but, but, but to, ah, so bird is bringing a show and tell, um, right? So this is what's on the Sefer Torah, um, that our ECC children love to stop and stare at. Um, I do too. I mean, right? There's days I'm like, okay, come on, y'all. Like, don't, don't you think? Don't you think? Right? I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Judy's like, Judy's like, yeah, I've seen this at home. Um, I've seen this behavior. Um, and on the Rimonim, uh, as well. Uh, and so the, these would have been, right? These would have been our equivalent of sapphires, rubies, right? These were precious stones for them. Um, and, and the creation of them, the polishing of them was absolutely labor intensive, right? Um, and the engraving on them is micro engraving. Um, it was an art form. If you think of Egyptian scarabs, th- that was an ancient art form, uh, was miniature uh, drawing and printing on stone and all done by hand. I, I just also think it sort of strikes me. This is slave people, as David mentioned. So for them to aspire to creating such magnificence is also a sign of saying we're free people now. We can aspire to creating beauty. Right. So I, it, so there's many who want to say, God's very wise. Take a slave population. How do you help lift them up? How do you help dignify? How do you help dignify them and have them see themselves as beautiful, right? You do that through this communal building project, which to our discussion last week, what's going to happen next week? What do they do with gold, jewelry, and artisanry, art, artisanry next week. They are right next to each other for a reason. Those stories, which I told you, I think is just so beautiful. They are right next to each other for a reason. Here's the instructions of how you can be a people of kavod and understand yourselves differently than slaves. And what do the slaves do? The minute they get afraid, the minute they panic, what do they do? They go right back to Egypt. Aren't they wealthy for the, maybe I'm missing, my understanding was is that they, uh, a lot of the stuff that they, a lot of the gold stones that they have, they got on their way out of Egypt. They borrowed it from the Egyptians. Right, right. But, but, but would they be the sort of, I don't know, nouveau riche type of, you know, they, they suddenly have all this stuff and it's almost like they're, it's being diverted into this community. Well, it's why. It's why this text continues to speak to Americans 2023, right? I have no trouble talking to B'nai Mitzvah kids about these parshiot. Because what you spend your money on, what you send your, spend your precious resources on tells you what is important to you. Is it going to be a $4,000, $20,000 Birkin bag? I only know this because I read that book. Um, is it a $20,000 Birkin bag? Or is it a communal project, right, that 
is about chavod and tifaret, about what is kadosh and what helps us live, live lives of kedusha. And the temptation is always the Birkin bag. The temptation is always the golden calf, and our work is to make it about this. So this can now stand for what? Environmental cleanup. This can stand for conservation. This can stand for education for all people to be able to access. Fill in the blank. Whatever we would spend our resources on that would be demonstrative of a commitment to Kedusha. Okay. And the temptation is always, right, to use it for something, right, a Birkin. All right. Something about my status, my, you know, like my importance. Okay. So let's look, let's look. Oh, wait, I need zoom back. At the end of this period, the king gave a banquet for seven days in the court of the king's palace garden for all the people who lived in the fortress Shushan, high and low alike. Pay attention. There were hangings of white cotton and blue wool caught up by cords of fine linen and purple wool to silver rods and alabaster columns. And there were couches of gold and silver on a pavement of marble, alabaster, mother of pearl, and mosaics. Royal wine was served in abundance as befits the king in golden beakers, beakers of varied design. And the rule for the drinking was no rules. For the king had given orders to every palace steward to comply with each person's wishes. In addition, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Achashverosh. On the seventh day, when the king was merry with wine, he ordered his seven eunuchs in attendance to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing a royal diadem. The rabbis want to say wearing a royal diadem only. The rabbis suggest a diadem only to display her beauty to the peoples and the officials, for she was a beautiful woman. But Queen Vashti, she said no to the king. She said no to the king. All right. Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command conveyed by the eunuchs. The king was greatly incensed and his fury burned within him. Okay, so why, what, what just happened? Like, just from what I read to you, what already do you hear? Linen, purple, crimson, yarns. What else did we hear? That should have resonated from Exodus. The cording, the woven cording, hanging from silver thingies. Well, that's exactly what we just had with the priests and what we have with the curtains of the Mishkan. They are this gorgeous stuff hanging with Golden, what are those called? Rings from a golden bar. This is exactly the same language, right? All the beakers were golden beakers. All of the, uh, Kalim, what's Kalim in English? All of the vessels of the Mishkan were made of precious metals. This is exactly resonant of what we just read in Titzaveh. Right? This holiday has always been on the 14th of Adar, people. Therefore, it is always somewhere near Titzaveh. It is somewhere near, even if it's three or four weeks apart, it's somewhere near Jewish consciousness about the Mishkan. Yes? George, you with me? 
Okay, good. So the, so this, so this is always kind of there. So the, right? So this is always, so the folks writing the Megillah and setting it in Adar are in the consciousness of tabernacle land, right? I don't, what I'm saying is many folks think this is not an accident that we have all of this description of what's happening in the palace right next to the time of year when we're reading the description of the luxury of the Mishkan. Amy, I'm concerned about why none of the men who were there, including the priest, didn't object to the queen appearing with the diadem only. Was that just... Judith, is that just a rhetorical statement? No, I... I like, for real, like... Hello. You don't think this happens at, oh, okay. I'm not going to say the name of the place. Well, it probably um, happens a lot, but I mean, it happened. This, this is, this is standard fare. This is, this is standard behavior. And the men are all bringing in naked dress. dancers. That wh- wh- Why is this shocking to anybody? Because these men are all supposed to be who? The Persian court? <laughs> It's still relevant. The Persian court. Why the why would the Persian court men care? I, I I'm I'm confused. What what would they object to? It they would probably say bring it on, but did did they never I don't understand why they wouldn't say what well, this is not right. This is <laughs> wow. Then only explain the most of human history. Wealthy men yeah. bring in beautiful naked women to dance for them. That is their entertainment. We men don't mind. That part in the Torah like, yet, huh? <laughs> but remember, we're not in Torah. We're not in Torah, and we're not talking about Jews. We're not talking about Israelite men. I'm not saying they're any different. I'm saying this text. I'm saying this text is written on purpose like this. This text is written on purpose to juxtapose what is done with luxury items on the one hand and what's done with luxury items on the other hand. What's done with beautiful clothing and a, and a tunic and a crown, uh, not tunic, uh, a turban, right? On the one hand and what's done with a crown in, in Shushan. It is meant to be gaudy. Horrible, disgusting. That's the point. You're, you're putting it up against exactly the description that we got of what's happening in the Mishkan. I don't think that's an accident. I think it is to drive home the debauchery of Ahasuerus' court. And if you take any ruler, any rich person who is committed to their own hedonism, there is not an objection by the men in the room to what's happening. I'm sorry. They can leave, but they're not going to object. You don't do that when you're in someone else's space and you're dealing with someone who's wealthy and powerful, particularly a king, right? Okay. I'm sorry. Ha, 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 ha. So make the case. Go ahead. Make the case. Uh, okay, so it's it's more golden calf stuff. So you don't use it for the glorification of God. You're using it for the glorification of the Birkin bag. Okay, like right? So in that sense, Ahashverosh 
And that society is doing exactly what the Israelites do next week. Right? And how does Torah feel about what happens next week? <laughs> right? Thumbs down. Right? So I can't help but believe that the people who wrote the Shushan story are not very aware, exceedingly aware, right, of using that imagery, using all of that portrayal, the debauchery, the disgustingness of the materialism, right, versus the Mishkan, and that the, our golden calf is right there is, is not an accident in either case. Okay. And, and there's orgies in the Bible too, just so you know. I'm sorry, what? I'm just gonna, I was gonna point out about, uh, Pidchas and, you know, if you, if you wanna, if you wanna see Jews doing it, you can just wait, <laughs> wait a few chapters. Just wait a few chapters. <laughs> so the guy with the Midianite woman, exactly. They, and they do it right in the, you know, like, right there. The king's taking on basically the qualities of the Mishkan and saying, the king's saying that I, my life deserves to be treated just like the Mishkan. All the things that are there, I should have too. And that turns out to be not such a good thing for him. Sort of. But remember, this is the king of Persia. So he wouldn't know from the Mishkan. The writers are saying, right. there are two ways we can use beauty. Lechavod ultif aret, or for my status and to show my wealth and my power and to cow everyone else. So how is the reader understand that all of that beauty and gold and wine is a, is not good. You know, that, that, that the king is having, why is this such a bad thing? Like, yeah, they're having a good time. Sign me up. Because he's going to want to murder all the Jews. Well, okay. <laughs> well, okay. Um, I mean, that there's that thinking. I mean, it, it's how he thinks, right? You know, she'll say, Oh, okay. We'll just murder a bunch of people. No problem. And Vashti, once he dismisses Vashti, what do you think happens to her? You think he's, he buys her a nice estate in Hawaii? She did. Yes. She's hanging from one of those rods in the, hmm? He doesn't get super punished there. No. So, so let, so let's hold, let's hold, cause that's a really good point. Because part of what we need to ask is what is the point of the Purim story? Why was it written? That is a very important question that nobody knows the answer to, by the way, cause no one told us. We just have the Megillah. We don't have the thinking behind the Megillah. So everyone has to extrapolate from the story. What was the purpose of the author? Right. What was because this never happened. People, let's be very clear. This never happened. And why is it included in the canon? And why is it included in the canon? Very good. Okay. good questions. After many days of drinking. Ahashverosh orders his wife Vashti to display her beauty before the guests. When she refuses, Ahashverosh deposes her as queen. Ahashverosh then orders all beautiful girls in his kingdom to be presented to him so he can select a new queen. The beauty contest takes place after each woman has prepared herself physically over many months and occurs overnight in the king's private chamber. I don't think you have this text. The winner of this questionable contest is the orphaned Esther. What does her name exactly sound like? Ishtar, the Mesopotamian goddess, who has been raised by her cousin Mordechai, which sounds like Marduk, the Mesopotamian god. So this person is claiming this is a parody. This Megillah is written as a parody. Why? Of what? To what end? Right? Anyway. 
King Ahasuerus and the men of his court and later all the men of Shushan drink and feast with abandon. They do so amidst gold and silver, tchelet and argaman, making the palace sound suspiciously like the Mishkan. The same materials that earlier in the Jewish journey had been assembled to glorify God now serve as the backdrop for drinking and debauchery. Although the king is not Jewish, this allusion to the sacred space of the Mishkan turns the reader's attention to the question of the strength of the new queen's Jewish identity. Is she a Jew in exile who painfully feels the hardship of staying hidden? Or is she an assimilated Jew with a name like Amy, disconnected from her Jewish heritage, for whom remaining hidden does not take a large toll? This is a question asked of all Jews living in the diaspora. How connected are they to their homeland and their historical and religious heritage, We hear Esther speak up for the Jewish people only after she's reminded that she will not be saved if Haman's plot is carried out. So with the disappearance of Vashti, we now get Esther, who is not called Hadassah. She has a Jewish name. It's Hadassah. We're told that in the Megillah. But she's called Esther. She's called Amy, not Rachel. That is significant. Why isn't she she called Hadassah? Because she's assimilated. So I think it's significant that she has a Persian name, like the most Persian name, Ishtar, right? Um, and that's how she identifies. And she becomes queen. We don't know why she hides her identity as a Jew. We don't know. We're not in, there's no, in, if there's no indication that he went to each house and only non-Jewish women were taken. First of all, it wasn't voluntary. These young women were seized and taken into the harem where they spent over a year preparing to go sleep with the king and audition. Well, what happens once you audition and you don't make it? I mean, you're, you're no longer a virgin, right? So these 12, 13-year-old girls are taken and prepared to audition for Ahasuerus. It doesn't get worse than this. For the Jewish authors of this story, it doesn't get worse than this, right? This is the worst of the worst of America right here, right? Think of our own society and the most disgusting use of wealth and power. That is what's being described here. So, but we're not told that she can't audition if she's Jewish. Okay, so let's look at uh, Esther 4. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whoever shall, man or woman, come into the king, into the inner court, who is not called. I just lost my place. Uh, There is one law for him, that he be put to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Remember, Mordecai can't just walk in and talk to Esther. And they didn't have, you know, a Google phone. The the, messages have to get carried outside the palace, right, to Mordecai. Then Mordecai bade them to return unto Esther. Think not with yourself that you will escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if you altogether hold your peace at this time, then will relief and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether 
you have come to this royal estate for such a time as this. Look at the Hebrew. Umiodea, and who knows? Imle'et kazot, if for a time exactly like this, he got lemalchut. You have come to malchut. You have come to royalty. You have become royalty. But the word is malchut. Malchut is already a thing for the rabbis. Malchut is one of the ten spherot. It is the lowest of the spherot. It, but it is, it is the connection point between the divine spherotic tree and humanity and earth. And our tree is reaching up this way, right? Our, our tree goes this way. God's tree goes this way. The meeting point for God is at Malchut. So maybe it is just for a moment like this, Esther, Hadassah, that you have risen to Malchut. So my question is coming from where? From humanity, from profane, from nothing to, to touching Malchut. What seemed like mere ornamentation turns out to be a protection against the overwhelming and potentially lethal power of God's sanctuary. We're now back on Titzaveh, on Exodus. Just to, Laura brought up the point earlier, right? It is, it is a, it is a guarding, right? We've talked about this, that you, these garments and, and the bells and everything is to protect the priest from the danger of coming into the innermost sanctum of whom? The king. Uh, what did Esther just say? It is well known that you can't come into the inner sanctum of the king without risking death. Yeah, just in the previous point of coming, is, is this comparable to Moses, who comes from, who's going to be killed and what have you, and then rises and finally finds out that he's an Israelite? Make the case. Make the case. Jesus, I mean, he comes from the mm-hmm. lowest... Uh, Israel is going to be killed. Uh, he gets raised by the royalty. Uh, he then uh, and lives as a royal person. And then instead of Mordecai coming to him, he sees people slain and what have you, looks, feels the injustice and then leaves. And- so what, what I will say is the, is the main, for me, distinction is that Moshe rises from nothing to royalty and then becomes a fugitive. His royalty does not give him any power. It only endangers him, right? He has to flee because he's broken Pharaoh's orders and he's now got to go. He gets no power, no saving power, no any efficacy from being royalty. It's only as a shepherd. Esther goes from nothing to royalty and it is her status as royalty that saves the Jews. So that, I mean, that, that's where I would make the distinction, but very similar themes. When you, the red, this is a question asked of all Jews living in the diaspora. How connected are they to their homeland and historical? So I thought about Moses. He, he wasn't connected at all. You know, so there's, there's something about participating in the assimilated world. And then somehow you get, um, What's the right expression? Tuified. 
you know, or, 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 or something bad's going to happen to the Jewish people. And some, that's when you get called back or that's when you take action. Right. Not that you don't, but, but with Moshe, does Moshe see, oh my gosh, the Jews are suffering. I should go save them. Well, he became aware of it. Uh, no, no. He's living with Zipporah and having a great life in Midian, by the way. How does, how does he go? How does he get to the mission of going to save the Jewish people? God says, go free them. And what does Moshe say? I can't. You picked the wrong guy. You made a mistake. Call someone else. In the story of Horam. So who would be that? Is Mordecai some kind of? There's no mention of God in the Megillah. God is Hester. Hidden. See what the rabbis did there? God is Hester, hidden. How do horrible things happen in the world? If God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, the only way terrible things happen, not Israelite theology, we're moving to rabbinic theology and and Kabbalistic theology. Leaving biblical theology, how do bad things happen? Hester panim. God hides God's face. And when there is Hester panim, horrible things happen. Okay. So, Dana? Hold that, as I asked Laura to hold it, hold that in terms of what is the point of this story? The authors could have put God anywhere they wanted to. Esther heard the voice of God. Esther, loyal to God, chose to risk her life. Mordechai, a loyal servant of yud who lights Shabbos candles and makes kid. They could have put it anywhere. It is not here. Why not? What what does that mean? What is the point of writing the story this way? What what are they trying to tell us? God is mentioned a lot. You mean you couldn't at the writing of this, you couldn't talk about God. So turns out that's not true. But that's a good one. That was a good one. That was a really good one. But it turns out it's not true. Maybe. The Jews were able to live uh, with a Israelite with a Jewish identity. Um, Cyrus, Cyrus, um, gives the Jews permission to return to Israel. There's a theory that this is written. Okay. Now you chew on why it's written this way. There's a theory that this is written by the Jews of New York who have no interest in returning to build the temple. Cyrus gives them permission from the Babylonian exile to go back and build the temple, right? Ezra and Nehemiah are like, all right, y'all, now we have to do our sacred obligation and go rebuild the temple, right? Temple language is everywhere, you know, Mishkan language is everywhere here. Mishkan becomes the temple. That language is everywhere here. The imagery is everywhere here because they are saying this is the new Mishkan. We do not have any desire to go back to Jerusalem, which is a disaster from war and whatever, to go rebuild when we have it pretty good in our Manhattan penthouse. I was going to say, I think... Maybe the Megillah story is a message for the diaspora that God's God doesn't have to be mentioned to uh, it. Whatever the lessons are, we have to embody them in our actions, in our stories, wherever we spread. Nice. And who is the one who does that in our story? Esther. You can't ignore if Laura's point, if Laura's purpose for writing this is true i take great pride in the fact that the hero of the story 
the one who risks her life to go into the inner sanctum of the king in all of these amazing finery is exactly parallel to the Kohen Agadol, to the high priest. Makes you understand Esther's story in a completely different way. And it makes me very proud that this made it into the canon. Well, assimilation is such a part of who we are. I mean, unfortunately, well, in, in being beholden to foreign courts, I mean, that should be something not just that we all identify. Especially today, but it hasn't changed since the Babylonian exile, right? It's the same exact situation. If you're living under a tolerant, wealthy government, what? why do we want to go back to Jerusalem? Like, are you kidding? Have you seen the sizes of the apartments there? But it's not, but that's saying that, oh, it's, it's about, we. Oh, sorry. That's just, that's just, that's sort of like a denigration of, that's a denigration of the diaspora. And I don't think this story is denigrating it. I think it's saying, hey, look, we can live in ways that are assimilated. Yeah, but I don't think it's denigrating to say, why would we want to go back and, and be in a tiny Jerusalem apartment? Why would we want that? Right. When we can have a great life here, if it's a wealthy, tolerant government, why wouldn't we stay? I agree. Yeah. Okay. I thought your tone was maybe Oh, my tone. Okay. Laura Diamond's one of the few people who can talk to me about my tone. No, I misunderstood. (laughs) Yeah. 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 No, it's like, right. Why should, why would we want to go back? Like, this is okay. It's okay. Yes. Yes. And look, we can take care of ourselves. Right. If we rise to power, Dafka, if we're in the diaspora and rise to power, we can stop terrible things from happening. We can't do that if we're sitting in Jerusalem and the Jews are endangered wherever. If we don't have high connected Jews, who's going to save them? But this is before democracy. Right? Right? Thinking about the fact that if Esther is in the position of the high priest, she is a young woman who would never get to be in that position in Jerusalem and that there are things that are possible for her and for other people outside of Jerusalem that wouldn't be possible if they returned. Beautiful. So not only is she not stuck in a small apartment in Jerusalem that has no running water and no electricity because there's it's been destroyed so not only does she have to, you know, not go live in a tent, you know, in a like destruction zone, she would never have had access to this kind of whatever. Neither did any other Israelite, but leaving that aside for a second, um, she would never have had access to this as a female. Where do females have status? Where do females have the opportunity to have a different kind of power? Manhattan in the diaspora, right? A beautiful other level of possibly right a position of the text by making the heroine a woman things are possible now possible you get taken from your home at 13 and taken to the harem and sleeping with the king and it went well so you you got you got the job but um right so so it's not ideal right they're not romanticizing or idealizing women's lives but to your point, it is a point that that never would have been possible, not only not for women, but for anyone not born a Levite or a Kohen. I'm thinking specifically less about the sort of status that she gets from royalty, but the like parallel to being able to embody the role of a high priest, which mm-hmm. wouldn't be possible in what we read in Exodus. Yes. All right. Well, oh, my gosh, we are out of time. I don't know how this happens. 
Um, we're not going to get through any of these texts. Okay. So take them home. Uh, it is Purim. So, uh, there's a lot of these texts that talk about kind of the, um, the message of Purim and just as the high priest dressed to impress, <laughs> uh, dressed for the role and, and that, that garmentry, like that jewelry, that is lechavod ultif aret so that the priest some want to say feels up to the role, right? Kind of dealing with the imposter syndrome, right? There's never been a high priest. How is Aaron supposed to feel up to this role, right? Well, that's part of what happens when you put on the uniform, when you put on the costume. I, I'm not, I'm not making a parallel here, but just about uniforms, you know, Nazi soldiers could take off their uniform, go home and play with the puppy and the toddler and then go murder toddlers with German shepherds once they put that uniform back on. Uh, so, I mean, there's, there is a very real way that what we wear influences and impacts who we are, right? Look at, look at how many times in court it's brought up. If a woman is assaulted, what was she wearing? Because what she wears communicates somehow her intention, her permission by whom? Right. The males who perceive her and who have the power to assault. So the robe of the judge, the white coat of the doctor is a prime example of how patients respond. Right. Um, so we have a lot of associations with authority and a role that comes with what we wear. So the whole idea of costuming on Purim um, is kind of about this. Um, and so the idea that we can put on different costumes means we get the opportunity and the permission to flirt with being other than who we usually are. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.